May the 5th, 2013, lecture discussion number 109 on the book of Romans. Let me write something down here real fast so that I have it. So again, May 5th, 2013, lecture discussion number 109 on the book of Romans. And as everyone all over the world uh, is aware, today is uh, Cinco de Stevo. And it started out this morning. We have we have uh, phone calls from people. It's pretty uh, pretty interesting. And and this particular Cinco de Stevo is significant as it is the the 60th uh, Cinco de Stevo. Though I must admit that I did not start counting Cinco de Stevos until uh, I was six years old. So it's really the 54th. But I, I assume that I was just uh, un- completely unaware. So I count all the way back to 60. And being that it's the 60th Cinco de Stevo, it brings a great deal more festivity than uh, the usual celebration on this day, which, as you know, is uh, this festivity and celebration is quite extensive, evidenced by the long-distance phone call I got this morning from Arizona, Jennifer. Uh, she sang Happy Cinco de Stevo to me on the phone, which I, I found very uh, Delightful, and it is evidence that I control Arizona. I needed confirmation of that. And people have been asking me all week, and my basketball players have called me because they I've drummed it into them every season. But they they ask me, how does it feel to be 60? And and I tell them, 60 is painful, much more so than 59. Uh, more things hurt now for longer periods, and and it is uh, apparent that the trend is going to continue. But probably what is the worst characteristic uh, is that the prospects for getting better at anything uh, through practicing is diminished substantially. I can't get better at anything anymore very well. Little tiny steps, and I have to lower my expectations, which, as you know, is my motto for living. But uh, improvement, very tiny, almost not measurable. And that is 60. It's somebody who uh, shall remain nameless. And that means they're here. After hearing me uh, recount what I just said to you, the aforementioned, they wanted to know, is there anything good about 60? And I thought for a couple of hours. And then went back to them and said, yes, it's not 90. And that, that's where I'm staying. <coughs> okay. Today, um, okay, anyway, so, I forgot. Today is the special Cinco de Stevo lecture. I always have lectures on special days. I'll have a Mother's Day special sermon as well. But today will be uh, Cinco de Stevo special lecture uh, because I am getting um, uh, inundated by the uh, Noah Adam people. They want me to do Noah Adam every Sunday, I guess, probably till I'm done. Um, impatience has overwhelmed the, these folks, the vast Internet audience, apparently. And there are obviously a lot of Noah Adam people out there, a lot more than I thought. I was hoping that I would have this kind of demand for the law of limited variation and progeny, but that doesn't seem to be happening. <laughs> I am getting, you better do, you better finish Noah Adam, and I mean now. So the Noah Adams, if you want to call them a group, uh, they are relentless, and they've become relentless, and I'm reluctant a little bit to concede their power, um, because uh, they're growing power, but I do understand that I'm forced to respond for my own safety. This, uh, I introduced this, uh, I think, last week, didn't I? What really happened at the curse? What really happened at the flood? And what really happened at the crucifixion? Three events in Scripture that are horribly misunderstood, and very few people, really, frankly, a very, very small group, has any understanding of one of them, much less all three. I, I count you as among those who have uh, understanding of what happened at all three. Maybe not a complete understanding, but you know that they're complex. And so the Noah Adam folks want me to continue with what happened in this tent at Noah. That's a, that would be a, a subset, so to speak, of what really happened at the flood. The tent of Noah, you see it here, item five. And I understand it because uh, uh, 
there's no question that, that the material that I utilize is, is not uh, common and it is hard to find if it's findable. And so um, I'm going to throw a few more things at the board. I won't write them on the board. I'm just going to throw them out there and kind of throw them at the wall, if you will, and, and, um, and hopefully they'll, they'll filter in a little bit. Uh, there's a Noah Adam symmetry. Yes, ma'am. Stop. I think it will. The Internet people will get upset. There's nothing we can do to stop them. There's nothing. You should see my mail. It is, it is what it is. Uh, okay. Uh, we stopped because Terry had an idea. And that's what we do around here. Anyway. Know that there is an Adam-Noah connection. And you really can figure out what happened to Noah or what happened to Adam by what happened to the other one, if you want to think of it that way. I may have mentioned this a while back. There are many, many people who are critical of Scripture who believe it is the exact same story. They think it's the same person, just different details. Of course, we know that's not true. They're literally two people, but they... They do have a symmetry where you can see a connection between the two of them. And I've often said that you can figure it out a little bit better, if you will, by comparing them and seeing them as two parts to a whole. Uh, that's why uh, 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 there's somebody here in the auditorium that named their sons, their twin boys, Adam and Noah. That's profound. That's just fantastic parenting right there. Because there really is... This amazing relationship between them. Uh, and so here I'll throw some more stuff. Some of it I've done before. As we know that Adam was in a deep sleep. He was put into a deep sleep. Genesis 2, 21 through 25. Noah also in a deep sleep. Genesis 9, 18 through 29. Noah's in a tent. We don't know if Adam was in a tent or not. Probably not. But both of them have a deep sleep, and something happened to them in that deep sleep. Now, we, are, we have a full understanding of what happened to Adam. We're told what happened to Adam when he was in his deep sleep. We really are not told. There's some clues about what happened to Noah. But the question becomes, can I figure out what happened to Noah based on what happened to Adam? Or at least try to get a clearer picture. Just just the sleeps, the deep sleeps, just if you want to call them two events, you can, because there's one for each. Just those two events shared somewhat by these two men. Just take that and start working on it. Because these men share events. Animals are brought to them. Both of them had animals brought to them. One to name, one to say. Both had curses as, as key elements of, of uh, their lives. Both were told to be fruitful and multiply. Both had nakedness that had to be covered. To name just a few of them, right? You know all of those. So start looking at the two of these guys and recognize that there is a symmetry again. Obviously, Adam's deep sleep was caused by God. Noah's was the result of something that he drank. And thus the question, what if anything else is shared by Adam and Noah with respect to their deep sleeps? In other words, can I solve the mystery of the curse of Canaan? Because Noah comes out and curses Canaan. That seems inexplicable. Because it's, it seems apparent that it is Ham that did whatever was done to Noah in the tent. And he curses the grandson and not the son. Can I figure out the mystery of the curse of Canaan by comparing the deep sleep of Adam to the deep sleep of Noah? I think you can. I think it's the only way you'll solve it. Now, the deep sleep of Adam, what was the purpose of it? Yeah, it was the construction of Eve the woman, or the woman Eve would be better. Adam is in a deep sleep, and out of, out of his side comes the blood and the flesh and the bone, and out of that material I have the construction of the woman. Certainly it's what? It's a surgical event, a surgical procedure. It's an operation. Anesthesia. 
The woman was bone of bone, flesh of flesh, and what was she? What does it say she was? I have no place to write. Let's flip it over. I want to come back to this side. Bone of bone, flesh of flesh, what's the next word? It's a very important word. Taken. Out. Bone of bone, flesh of flesh, taken out of Adam. Taken out. Genesis 3.23. What's the obvious question now? I'll keep going. The woman, therefore, would have been, or would have, Adam's DNA structure. Had to be the case. It is very important to recognize that the cells of Adam were used to fashion Eve's. Eve, Adam's cells were Eve's starting material. Now, here comes the obvious questions flying out about Noah. The what really happened in the tent subset. Because that's what we're trying to solve is the mystery of the curse of Canaan. What really happened in the tent uh, is a subset of what really happened at the flood. Okay? This question, how long was Noah asleep? How deep was Noah's sleep? If something was taken out of Adam, what was taken out of Adam again? Blood, flesh, bone. What was the purpose? To construct another human being. If something was taken out of Adam, was something likewise taken out of Noah? If so, what? What was taken out? What was collected? For what purpose? Who took it out? How did they do it? So I ask the question when I do this all the time, is this Judges 19? you remember Judges 19? That's my number one sermon, by the way, on sermon audio. Uh, Dave, uh, Dave titled it, Dave uh, Stahl titled it, A Bloody Stump in the Mail. Remember that? See, one of the things that happened to Judges 19 was what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah. There was this, this effort by these these groups of people to defeat death by harvesting blood and DNA material. They're a lot smarter than we think they were. So is this Judges 19? Is this Genesis 19? Is this Genesis 6? Or is it 1 Kings 2, 13 through 25, which is uh, the, uh, the uh, issue of Solomon um, having to kill uh, an usurper, if you will, who wanted to have, uh, uh, wanted to take one of his concubines, and it was a king issue. You can read that, uh, in your spare time. Okay, so what is going on in this tent? What really happened? Is something being collected? Noah, or taken from Noah, Noah awoke and he knew, immediately knew, what his younger son had done. And cursed the grandson. That's why it's the mystery. He knows the younger son did it, but he cursed the grandson. So was it done for what? What's the obvious question now? If Ham did it, what's his motive for doing it? What would be the relationship between what happened and the cursing of the grandson? Did Ham do it for the benefit of the grandson? See, they just came through, didn't they? We, we don't know how long it took to plant a, a vineyard. We don't know how many years it took to harvest the grapes. We don't know how long the fermentation process was. We're not really sure when it happened, but you know that a lot of, great deal of time before this could have all occurred. So, Ham lived through the events of Genesis 6. What are the events of Genesis 6? That's the sons of God, the daughters of men, and the Nephilim, right? He would know the issue of the, of the Nephilim. He would know that there was this cosmological mix. And I know there's other views that are just not defensible, frankly. When you put all of the Bible together, the cosmologically mixed view is the one that prevails. is the most likely case of Genesis 6. 
But the implication is that that the pre-flood world was run amok with contaminated beings who were especially murderous. And so, obviously, Ham, Ham lived through that process. And the question becomes is how much did he understand of it? And Noah is specifically said to be uncontaminated. It says righteous in your Bibles, but it means uncontaminated. Noah was uncontaminated. That is a characteristic that is especially unique to him. Is it valuable? Is it something that Canaan wanted or required becomes the question. The bone of my bone, the flesh of my flesh statement of Adam referencing the building or the construction of the woman comes immediately after Adam is awake. It is the first statement, if you wish, of Adam's, or recorded statement for sure, of Adam's uh, post-surgery. And the first statement of Noah upon awakening is, Cursed be Canaan. He knew what had happened to him, and he knew why, and he knew who. And he curses the grandson. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. In other words, Canaan will always be lower than his brethren. That's what he said. Does that ring any bells? Note Genesis 3.14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more. On your belly you shall go. Satan will be lower. Canaan will be lower. Both will be cursed. Both, it would naturally follow, would have something to do with poison or poisoning. Now, here's something that's happening on my birthday. It happens every now and then. It doesn't happen on my birthday. It happens because I'm 60. I, as you know, I have these floaters that go across my eyes. And when they happen, I can't, I can see Bonnie, but I can't see Bill. I cannot read my text, what I've written. It's gone. It takes a while for it to go. Fortunately, I'm the one that wrote it. So I don't really need to read it word for word, and I'll keep going. But if it starts to get really weird, when it was, when I was younger, of course, it meant that I was going to have something. Do you know what I was going to have? I called 911 the first time I got it. I said, this is really weird. I have this floating thing going across my eye. It's traveling. And my eyesight is getting smaller and smaller. I'm not able to see periphery, peripheral, whatever that word will be. Can't see, and it's getting dark. And the guy on the end of the phone said, sir, go home. Okay, cool. That's about 25. Why? You're about to have the worst headache of your life. And I've had them on and off. I've never had one happen while I've been standing here. This is my first one on Cinco de Stevo. It means that I need more Kentucky Fried Chicken. Fortunately, that's going to be, uh, that's going to be soon. It'll go away. It always has in the past. But sometimes it can get pretty painful. So if that happens, then we'll deal with it. Okay? Now, I'm going to leave Noah and Adam uh, there for a while. They just The folks just wrote and they said, would you please give us some more stuff that we can chew on? And, and I gave you more stuff, uh, hoping that that will make you happy, but knowing that it won't make you happy. It's just not. But... Uh, it's a puzzle. I'm not saying it isn't. I'm saying that it is very mysterious. There's more to it. It's why I call it what really happened. Um, will we ever really get it? I doubt it. We can come, uh, we can at least be educated about it and recognize how they fit together at least a little bit. Okay, next, I decided very late this week uh, to include Jeremiah 19.5. I got a request for that and I thought, okay, I'll do that since it's a special Cinco de Stevo lecture. Uh, Jeremiah 19.5 makes you do Leviticus 18.21, Leviticus 20.25, and Genesis 6.6 6 and 7, as well as Matthew 26.36 through 40, I would say, 39 for sure. They wanted me to do that. They wanted me to do Jeremiah 19.5. Uh, a lot of people have asked me to do something because of this Kermit Gosnell trial in Philadelphia, 
And this other gentleman, uh, as you know, uh, Mark from Texas, said, could you throw in Jeremiah 19.5? And it does definitely fit uh, all of that subject, and so I thought I would do it. I'm also going to do it because Jeremiah 19.5 is uh, very often used by Bible teachers who want to promote the heresy that God is not omniscient. It's the one that they throw out uh, as often as, as any and, and more often than most, I would say. It's the favorite of those who wish for God to be fragile. They, for some reason, um, want God to be, fra- uh, to be weak, I, both mentally and otherwise. But certainly they want him to be fragile. Uh, that's inexplicable to me. Uh, why they wish that escapes me, I, I don't understand. I can't find a logical reason why someone would want God to be weak and unstable. But apparently the majority of what passes for theological scholarship indeed desires for him to be defective. And that is just the case. Get used to it. It is what it is. They want him to be unsound, even incompetent. And it is it is constantly pushed. And the majority, I say the majority, that's not adequately describing them. Uh, they're much more than that. They are way beyond being the majority. The God is powerless view is now the consensus uh, view. Um, that doesn't mean the consensus is ever right, by the way. It just means they have more of them by a large manner, uh, a margin than, than, and than the counter view. Uh, in other words, Laodicea is winning, uh, or so they think. A flawed God is a, I, I, again, it is difficult to even imagine why one, someone would want that, but uh, it must have something to do with economics because they will always use what they have to make money with it. So needless to say, the people that I've just called the majority with regard to this subject, they hate me. There's no doubt about it. They don't stutter. Uh, I'm savage can, uh, often for my refusal to abandon my fundamentalist rigidity. Uh, I am an old dinosaur, uh, frozen in the, pla- in the past. Frozen is appropriate now, isn't it? Because it is the coldest a- April and July on record, I think. Uh, but I make these folks especially upset whenever I do Jeremiah 19.5. Uh, and as an added bonus... Uh, Jeremiah 19.5 is very handy to me because of the hyper-Calvinist. If you don't know what a hyper-Calvinist is, he is somebody to believe who teaches you that God is the author of evil. In other words, evil comes out of God. That God gave evil to Satan, for example, and he gives evil to you and me. He is the author of it, and therefore uh, he is unable to judge it. Uh, because he's unqualified. They don't go that far. I add that to them because that's the natural end to it. But they are the ones, the hyper-Calvinists, who declare God to be the author author of evil. So I'm able to blast away with Jeremiah 19.5 at two groups of people simultaneously. That's why I like 19.5 Jeremiah. As you know, uh, if those of you, anyone here, uh, go to my Jeremiah classes 20 years ago. Maybe two. Well, I did it at a house uh, here in Anchorage uh, 20 years ago. Um, I, I took a year and I got through three verses in Jeremiah. Uh, so if you were here for that, I'm shocked that you're here for this. But anyway, Jeremiah 19.5 is a favorite of mine. I use it to thump uh, all, all kinds of people, uh, uh, especially the hyper-Calvinists amongst other verses um, and, and the ones who want God to be unsound and defective and incompetent and certainly not powerful. They want him to be powerless. That's how they explain things like uh, catastrophic events. And God can't stop them, they'll say. They're not the result of sin. They're not the result of corruption. There are the consequences. They are simply God with an inability to stop any kind of, of, of natural phenomenon. So that, that's very common. And they ask all the time, why does God allow evil? Why does he allow all of these catastrophic events? It's because he's powerless. That is their answer. So I used uh, 19.5 of Jeremiah to thump them and the ones who say that he is the author of evil. Okay, I've repeated that enough. So once again, I'm busy about uh, my work of making all of these uh, contemporary megachurches that do this stuff. They loathe me. Um, I've actually I've actually come up. Uh, people have sent me uh, CDs of uh, some of these churches who refer to me now. So I'm becoming, uh, what's the word I want? What's that? Infamous is a good word. I was thinking targeted might be better. But anyway, 
I'm actually pretty good at making these people mad. And, uh, and that's uh, encouraged me on my 60th birthday because I'm getting better at making them mad. And that is one thing that I'm getting better at. So that's always good. So we're going to read Leviticus 18.21, Leviticus 20.25, Jeremiah 19.3 through 8, Jeremiah 19.11, and Jeremiah 19.15. And that's what we're going to do here today. And while I'm doing that, you ask, what does this have to do with Romans 5.12, which is where we are? What really happened at the curse, right? And Genesis 3.14, which is what really happened at the curse. Through one man, sin and death, Romans 5.12. And Genesis 3.14, because you, Satan, have done this, because you have done this. Okay, Leviticus 18.21. People don't read Leviticus 18.21 very often, but you should put a note in your Bible. You will, I can't hold mine up without it falling apart. But I have Leviticus 18.21 circled, and I have a little note telling me to go to Jeremiah 19.5. I think that's a good idea. It says this, And you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Moloch. What this is, is child sacrifice. You will not take your child and put it on the burning hands of Moloch or Baal, same thing, um, Ishtar, same thing. You will not put your children and burn them to death, essentially. Nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You sh- uh, That's... Leviticus 18.21. Don't do it. Don't. No child sacrifice. He goes on to, by the way, link child sacrifice with other things. uh, If you were around for that lecture. Now, Leviticus 20.25. Okay, this is going to be a little more troublesome because of my eye here. That is not the right verse. Where is it exactly? Ah, 2022 and then 2022. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying again, You shall say to the children of Israel, Whoever of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell in Israel, who gives any of his descendants to Moloch, he shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I will set my face against that man, will cut him off from his people, because he is given of his descendants to Moloch to defile my sanctuary and profane my holy name. Same thing. Giving your descendants to Moloch is to burn them alive as infant children. 22, he says, You shall keep my statutes and all my judgments and perform them, that the land where I am bringing you to dwell may not vomit you out. Don't sacrifice your children. Hey, now, Jeremiah 19.5. Actually, all kinds of Jeremiah. We'll start at 3. Hear the word of the Lord, O God, King of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, there's your first behold that we're going to read. I will bring such a catastrophe on this place that whoever hears of it, his ears will hurt. Now why? Because they have forsaken me and made this an alien place, because they have burned incense incense in it to other gods, whom neither they, their fathers, nor the king of Judah have known, and have filled this place with the blood of the innocents. What are they doing? Burning their kids. Why? Why are they doing that? They have built also, I'm sorry, they have also built the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or speak, nor did it come into my mind. That's the verse, by the way, that they, that we're dealing with today. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, said the Lord, that this place shall be no more be called Tophet, 
or the valley of the sons of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. And I will make void the counsel of Judah and Jerusalem in this place. I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies and by their hands of those who seek their lives. Their corpses I will give as meat for the birds of heaven and the beasts of the earth. I will make this city desolate and a hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and hiss because of all its plagues. Does he like, does he tolerate child sacrifice? The killing of the innocents. He does not. Does not like, will not tolerate, will not accept what is happening in Philadelphia, among other places. He goes on to say this, Even so I will break this people as this city as one breaks a potter's vessel which cannot be made whole again, and they shall bury them in Tophet till there is no place to bury them. Thus I will do to this place. Behold, I will bring on this city and on all her towns all the doom that I have pronounced against it. Why? Because they are burning their children. Okay? Certainly, all of that is about child sacrifice and the killing of the innocents. And that's something that the eugenics movement in the United States does for great profit today. They make lots of money in the industry. And they've been doing it for a hundred years, or better, a hundred plus years, the Margaret Sangers and, and her like-minded. And there's so much money now, billions and billions of dollars, and they use that money to control a political party and to control the media. And no one will speak against them, or so few. The horror that is happening. They're very powerful, the eugenics, the eugenics movement, the genocide movement. Very powerful, and they have no fear. They don't believe there's any consequences. People will hiss. The point is, is that this evil that they do today is not new. But today I want to focus on Jeremiah 19.5. But I had to give you the context of child sacrifice. Okay, let me read it again. For they have built, also built the high places of of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or speak, nor did it come into my mind. That's the verse. That's the one that uh, uh, is used quite a bit to try to prove something. So I have a I have a. Uh, Another letter here that came. It's uh, from Mark from Texas. You may remember Mark. He was arguing or uh, discussing, I guess would be a better term, with Mr. Joseph Farrar. If you remember, Joseph Farrar is the head of World Net Daily, and he is a highly respected uh, intellect. And uh, he came up, if you remember, from Lecture 105, where he had something to say that um, was indefensible. And Mr. Farrar, to say the least, is having a bad month. Because here he is again. But people will read this, and because this is a prominent man, they will assume that, uh, and he is a man of significant intellect, they will assume that he's what? Theologically correct. And that he has thought it through. He has not thought it through. Um, So, let me read it. Mr. Farrar, I wrote, by the way, over the top of it, and now my eyes got these floaters, it's going to be trouble. I wrote pure crap over the top of it. I get in trouble for saying that. It bothers me. (laughs) So I'm going to have trouble reading it. This is going to be a challenge. In... Farrar paraphrases Jeremiah 19.5. This is his commentary on what he believes 19.5 says of Jeremiah. In fact, um, they are so radically sinful, talking about the Jews, killing their children. So, in fact, they are so radically sinful. He's correct right now. So far, so good. Should have stopped there. 
that the creator of the universe who defines right from wrong says in Jeremiah 19.5 that until the notion of child sacrifice was actually committed by the human race, it had not even entered his holy mind as a possibility. That's what Mr. Farrar says Jeremiah 19.5 is about. Now, this is typical, sadly, of most commentary on Jeremiah 19.5. And if you decide to search out the opinions of expositors, uh, what Mr. Farrar wrote, unfortunately, is representative. And once again, it is completely wrong. But it is what passes for scholarship today. The implication that God has not thought of something or that God is subject to time, which is what is implied by Mr. Farrar, that he is inside of time. Time is going along. Oh, no, something happened that he hadn't thought of. And it surprised him. So the implication that God has not thought of something or that God is subject to time, inside of time, where in fact he is the creator of time and completely outside of it, but never mind, or that God discovers something that, was, that he was previously unaware of. Oh, wow, child sacrifice. Who could have thought that? Who thunked that up? Wow, that really has shocked me, God. Or that God must, in other words, that God is previously unaware of it, or that God must experience something to learn what it is, or how it functions, or what it feels like. You see that a lot. Christ had to become human in order to know what it would be like to be human. He made the humans. He's the designer of the humans. All of what Mr. Farrar and the rest of that that I just gave you, all of that is nonsense. God knows all things always. That is how he is. He can't help it be that way. That is what he is and who he is. Omniscience means omniscience. There is no half omniscience. That's like half infinity, as we discussed a few weeks ago. It's the same mistake every time. But it keeps being pounded that it stuns people, unfortunately. There are no surprises. God knows all things, John 21, 17. Have no position that is in conflict with God's omniscience. And this opinion that God somehow saw the child sacrifice of Israel burning their children to Moloch and was stunned by it, that is contrary to his omniscience. That is contrary to the fact that he is the creator of time. So Jeremiah 19.5 cannot mean what Joseph Farrar said. Let me read it again. It can't mean this. That until the notion of child sacrifice was actually committed. What's that mean? God's inside of time. He's just going along being God. Everything's fine. Oh, look. Child sacrifice. Wow. Hadn't seen that before. It's nonsense. Until the notion of child sacrifice was actually committed by the human race, it had not even occurred to God as a possibility. That cannot be true. It cannot mean what Joseph Farrar has concluded it to mean, because that's heresy. It's foolishness. So what does it really mean? As an aside, well, I may have to, much to the dismay of the audience, see how my time is. I'm not doing so well here, folks. So, obviously, I need more medicine. I may have to shut it down. We'll see how we go. I need to be less ranting. I'm starting to. I, I have as much as time as I want, Terry. That's right. <laughs> but... Uh, Oh, okay, let's try again. As an aside, this uh, 19.5 Jeremiah is often coupled with Genesis 6, 6 through 7. I hear that I put the two are often very much uh, brought up at the same time. Let me give you that. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. If you remember that one? And was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created. From the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I made them. You see, 19.5 and Genesis 6, 6-7 put together. Obviously, 
in Genesis 6, 6 through 7, God did know that man would become corrupt. He's outside of time. He can see time simultaneously. So he can just go, oh, look, corruption. Oh, look, child sacrifice. He can't help it. So God obviously knew that man would become corrupt. Again, he cannot be shocked or surprised or caught unaware. It's impossible. And more obviously, the key to understanding Genesis 6, 6 through 7, is God's definition of sorry. He means sorrowful. Let me read it again. And the Lord God was sorrowful that he had made man on the earth. Notice that. On the earth. And was grieved in his heart. I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. See that? There's two of those in there. Man on the earth from the face of the earth. Both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am grieved, sorrowful that I made them. Okay? Obviously, the key to understanding it is God's definition of sorrowful and grieved and why sin makes God weep. Because sin does make God weep. He always weeps for who? Matthew 26, 36 through 39. He always weeps because there are eternally lost men. That's what makes him sorrowful. That's why he's sorrowful. God is sorrowful at Genesis 6, 6 through 7, and at Matthew 26, Gethsemane, 36 through 39. Compare the two. Genesis 6, 6 through 7 cannot be understood apart from Gethsemane, Matthew 26, 36 through 39. And on the earth and face of the earth references clearly the context there is physical death with respect to destroy. Because I'm talking about the face of the earth on the earth. I will destroy them from the earth. That's physical destruction, physical death. But eternal death with respect to sorrowful. Did you make, that make sense to you? The context is physical death with respect to destroy, but eternal death with respect to sorrowful. He always weeps for the eternally lost. That's what makes him sorrowful. I am grieving, I am sorrowful because of the eternally lost. And also notice the both man and beast and creeping thing. And birds. Who's missing? Genesis 1, 20 through 25. Yeah, the living souls of the waters. So you've got to ask, why are they omitted? That becomes a very important question in Genesis 6, 6 through 7. God is sorrowful and grieved over the corruption of the earth, and the time has come to end it. And when he ends it, why is he sorrowful? What's the consequences of him ending the corruption? Going to do the same thing in Revelation. What's, going to, what's the consequences? Consequences of him ending the corruption is the lost eternity. There is no more opportunity for forgiveness and repentance and salvation. That is what makes him weep. But he is not saying that he is surprised or changing his mind or regretting. God is immutable. He's unchanging. He's unchangeable. He cannot change or be changed. So he weeps. God weeps when the time comes for the lost to remain lost. Does that make sense? I hope so. The lost will choose to be lost and to stay lost. I say all the time, after being in the lake of fire for a hundred years, you can have a survey. You can send Gallup. Down there, and how many people will repent and want to be out of the lake of fire and submit themselves to the reconciliation and the servanthood of God? None. No one will want out. The lost will remain lost and choose to remain lost. And God weeps for them. That is one of the lessons that begins at Genesis 3, by the way. The fact that Adam and the woman did not eat of the second tree once poisoned. They did not choose to remain lost. Satan did choose to be, remain lost. Anyway, where was I? Yeah, I'm doing Jeremiah 19.5. Tophet. Remember how it said Tophet? Let me read that again for you. That this place shall no more be called Tophet. 
What's tofet mean? It means drum. It won't be called the place of the drums. What do you suppose they were doing with the drums while they were sacrificing the children? They were beating the drums as loud as they could. How come they were doing that? Because the children are screaming as they're being tortured. There's evidence that they burned them twice. So they're beating on the drums to drown out the screams. He says, no more, I'm going to let you beat drums. Pounding on drums to mask the sounds of the screaming children. And the time will come that God brings doom to the drum beaters. Therefore, behold, the days, the time is coming. Behold, the time is coming. Behold, I will bring all the doom. Behold, I will bring such a catastrophe to this. Three beholds. He's not stuttering. You can count on it. All referencing the, all these beholds reference the future time that God will end this wickedness. And He will end it. And then what will He do? He will weep. What He does, it's who He is. But notice that God is specific. He did not command this child killing. He says so. I did not command. And he did not speak it. I did not command or speak. I didn't command it. I didn't speak it. And then it says, nor did it come. So you have all three of them. But let's just take the first two. Both command and speaks are references to what? What is it referring to? I didn't command this. What's the this? Child killing. Butchery, slaughter, horrible of innocent children. I didn't command it. I didn't speak it. So what's he talking about? I, God, God is saying clearly that he is not the origin of the child sacrifice. There are references to the origin. Let me put that on the board. Is that your choices, by the way? That's where Mr. Farrar once again struggles. He says specifically twice there. Says it three times. Each time he's talking about what? The origin. Not his omniscience, but I'll keep going. Both command and speak are references to the origin of child sacrifice. God is saying, I am not the one who, who is the source of this then it is obvious that the third is also referencing origin as well. It's three times, he says, I am not the source. Okay, so let's read it. I did not command, I did not speak, nor did it come into my mind. Now, the word for mind there, uh, I think is more accurately translated heart, but it doesn't matter. But let, let me put it in a way that is more consistent with command and speak so that you get it, uh, I think, uh, this way. I did not command it. I did not speak it, nor did it come from my mind. I am not the origin of this. In other words, God is not the author of child sacrifice or any evil, for that matter, or any sin. You see why they hate me in the hyper, hyper Calvinist circles? Because I pound them at Jeremiah 19.5. He says it clear as a bell. I am not the origin of sin. It is not in my heart. There is no sin in his heart. He has no evil, no sin. He has no such thing in his mind. He is always good. He is declaring himself so. I am not the author of sin as plain as it can be said. Does it matter to the churches that make money otherwise? No. They like what they teach. Sin is not from God because sin cannot and does not enter him. He would immediately be burnt. So the least obvious of the most obvious questions now has to be asked. If child sacrifice or child killing, child slaughter, this brutality, this great evil does not come from God, what is the obvious question? Yeah. 
Who does it come from? What's your choices? Who thought first? Who is the originator of child killing? Somebody had to think of it first. Who's the first one? It did not come from the mind of God. did not originate with God. Who thought of it first? Who said, wow, this will work? And then, why did he, this person that thought of the, the originator of child killing, why did he implement it? What is this purpose of it? His purpose. What is his motive? What does he think to gain? What does he think he's gaining from the killing of innocent children? That should, by the way, be obvious to you. Who thought of it? What kind of person repeatedly and viciously and continuously and heartlessly kills innocent children and hears them scream and beats on drums? Who does that? I'll tell you what kind of person does it. People who are lost and will choose to stay lost. The vomited out people. They will stay lost because they are given over to the debased and darkened minds. So the wording of Jeremiah 19.5 is not about omniscience, as Mr. Farrar so confidently writes without ever checking anybody. I know it's hard to find. You can get a little bit of out of it out of John Gill. I should give him credit. He was a great theologian. He knew immediately who the originator of this was. Who is the originator of this idea, child sacrifice? Who thought of it? Satan thought of it. Why did he think of it? Because he has a plan to get as many lost people permanently lost as he possibly can. This is a great way to do it. It takes a unique person to be Kermit Gosnell. Those people are doomed. God will bring doom to them. So, it is, it is not about omniscience, as Joseph Ferrar asserts. It is instead about the origin of child killing and the accompanying drum beating. You see, it's a pair. I kill the children, I beat the drums. Those two are joined together. And the fact that it was thought of by somebody and why he thought of it and what his purpose was. And God commands and speaks the absolute opposite of this. And he says so. And that we should expect. Because he's omniscient, he knows that if you do this drum beating, child killing thing, you're lost. And you will choose to stay lost. He's got to stop you for your sake and his glory or his glory and your sake. And so, because he knows. Notice how I said that? He knows. Well, how does he know? He's omniscient. He knows all things always have no position otherwise. Let's rise and be dismissed.